Um, today's scripture comes from Zechariah 14, verse 1 through 15. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the woman raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a, a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and on the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquakes in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and the holy ones with him." On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon south of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stand forever. Thank you, Grace. Thank you for the reading. Thank you for the prayer, Pastor Hugh, and once again, thank you, Brother Stephen, for uh, sharing your heart with the church. Uh, if you want to hear more, I believe uh, Davina and Stephen are talking about a podcast episode on CrossCon and many more of what, what they've experienced together. Uh, I want to welcome a brother named Bernard Kim. Uh, I, if I heard correctly, he's part of the Navy, I believe. Bernard, where are you sitting right now? In the middle? No? <laughs> he's sitting next to Keith over there. Okay, maybe not the Navy. Let's give uh, Bernard a warm welcome. Every year, dictionary publishers select a word of the year based on the cultural development and the trends of that given year. And in 2023, Collins Dictionary chose the word AI as their word of the year, right? No surprise there. But do you know what they chose for the previous year, 2022? This may surprise you. They chose the word permacrisis. What in the world? Never heard of that one. But a permacrisis is defined as an extended period of instability and insecurity, especially one resulting from a series of catastrophic events. 
You see, everyone was already stressed over the political and economic instability we've been experiencing even prior to 2022, but 2022 was a year Russia invaded Ukraine, so there was this heightened sense of fear and insecurity that many people felt. In fact, there are companies like Vivos and Rising S that I've learned recently specialize in building underground bunkers. And these company leaders say that there has been a sharp increase in demand since 2022. And so I wanted to share some photos with you. If you can dim the lights quickly, can I give you an idea what these companies actually build? These are underground. Can we dim the spotlights as well? Okay, so you see there? That, that is, believe it or not, an underground bunker. Uh, next slide. It, it's probably much better. I mean, this is a luxury bunker, much better than uh, your, your house right now, probably. And the next one, last one. And if you, if you wanted a pool, you could even order a pool to go with it. And I'm not sure who's going to maintain that pool during the apocalypse, but, you know, good luck with that. Anyway, all right. Lights back on. Some of you may have uh, even seen this past week that um, Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, is building a $100 million compound, which includes a luxury underground bunker in Hawaii. And this was meant to be kept a secret, but someone leaked the news, and so he's not happy about it. But isn't it interesting, brothers and sisters, that this is what people are now spending their money on because they sense that we're in this perma-crisis, and something terrible is bound to happen, something far worse than COVID. Now, if, if you love the world so much, I suppose you can spend a fortune and choose to hide in some luxury underground bunker, but I thought about this, okay? <laughs> I've already decided <clears throat> that I'm not going to hide. I'm going to stay above ground, and I'm going to try to help whoever may be in need. I mean, the worst thing that's going to happen to me and my family is what? We die early, and we go be with the Lord sooner than later, right? And so I know where I'm going to be. Right? I know where my family's going to be. Uh, the question is, where are you going to be? I think all of you need to decide and be resolved in your heart where you're going to be when the next apocalyptic event happens. Uh, the last few chapters of Zechariah... <clears throat> are understood to be a series of apocalyptic visions of the future. And this final chapter in the book really does describe an, unex or not, an extended period of instability and insecurity, right? essentially a perma-crisis. But we all need to understand that this is how God intends to usher in and eventually establish his eternal kingdom. It's not through a prolonged period of peace. It's rather through a prolonged period of hardship and persecution that will really want to cause us to give up and abandon the faith altogether. <clears throat> but again, please be reminded that the whole point of Zechariah is to encourage us to press on, right? To rebuild our faith in the Lord as we look to him and trust in his Glorious promises. Yes, of course, we all know this by now. Life is extremely hard, but this earthly life is but a mist 
as compared to the future life that we're promised in the Lord. Amen? That's what this chapter is all about. So let's look together. What is the first thing that you see in this final chapter? You first see Jerusalem being besieged and plundered. It says, Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. What language is this? It means we're being conquered or we're being destroyed. There is destruction here. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. All the, the pagan forces, all the enemies of God will descend upon this holy city of Jerusalem and it will be destroyed and the city shall be taken, it says. Houses will be plundered. And the worst part of this verse, <clears throat> I have to say it because it's part of God's word, I'm sorry. It says, the women will be raped. Truly a terrible and unbelievable scene that may actually trigger some of you, but it's, again, part of the Testament of Scripture, so it's something that we cannot ignore. And I don't want you to believe that we're to read this and think that every single detail we read here is going to happen to every believer in the same way, but we're basically told that we as God's people, we will be aggressively targeted by ungodly elements in this world, much like how ancient Israel was attacked and plundered by the pagan nation of Babylon and later by Rome. And by the way, you should all know that these kind of things have already been happening and are still happening to Christians all over the world. Houses plundered, women raped, the difficult truth is not that God, he, he allows these things to happen, but the, I believe as a Christian, if I really consider my, my struggles in the past, the most difficult truth is that God, he directly ordains these events to be part of his salvation plan. It's the hardest truth to swallow, in my opinion. And I would never say that you, you should never struggle with this idea that God directly ordains such tragedies to come to pass because, I mean, I, I've shared my struggles in, in previous messages, right? I mean, I, I struggle with these things too. But we all eventually have to make a choice, don't we? You know, you can act like you're in a position to judge God and allow these seeds of bitterness and resentment and doubt to gradually erode your faith and deconstruct your faith, which, which, by the way, has become this social contagion, largely due to you know, the promoting of these ideas through social media. You, you can do that. You can go that route if you want. Or you can humbly accept the reality, which I have resolved to do many years ago, that maybe God, who created this infinite universe of which you and I are able to understand only a tiny fraction is someone who is far greater and wiser than our minds and hearts can ever comprehend. And maybe we should trust him and pay closer attention to what his purpose may be in the midst of these tragedies and sufferings that we experience and encounter all around us. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 9 I mean, the, the, today's chapter is really tied to the previous chapter, but the previous chapter we, we read, I will put this third of my people into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. You see, that, that's what God does. 
He brings suffering into our lives as a way to test his people and refine us. In Acts chapter 14, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. See, that is the path for us. Not through a period of peace, it's through a prolonged period of suffering that we enter into the kingdom. Through these messages, I'm not simply trying to prepare you, brothers and sisters, for the bit of social awkwardness that you will feel in your workplaces or you may feel at your family gatherings as a Christian. I mean, I fully expect you now to maintain your Christian integrity in those kinds of gatherings. What I'm trying to do through Zechariah, what I've been trying to do ever since I opened up the book of Acts, how long has that been? It's been a while already, but I've been trying to prepare you for the greater trials ahead when your faith will be further exposed and when you will genuinely feel tempted to renounce your faith because of your reluctance to endure through the more intense kind of pain and affliction described here in Zechariah. Is anyone here truly confident in their own ability to endure the kind of suffering mentioned here? Maybe the kind of suffering that I detail when I was sharing about Pastor Sohn a couple times over the past few weeks. Are you confident? I'm not. Most of you know this already. I've said it before. I don't, I don't really trust myself all that much knowing my weaknesses. I'm a very weak man apart from the grace of God. I, I don't trust myself. And so I kind of chuckle inside. I don't really chuckle in front of you, but whenever someone approaches me and says, Pastor Paul, can you trust me? <laughs> I'm like, I can't. I don't, I don't even trust myself, okay? How am I, how am I, how am I gonna trust you, right? I'll trust you to some degree, right? We shouldn't, we, we shouldn't trust ourselves. Right? We trust the Lord. But despite our personal weaknesses, we should be encouraged by the fact that God knows exactly how we feel when the walls around us begin to crumble. He knows that we will be afraid. He knows that we'll panic, that anxiety will overwhelm us. And so even though he could just choose to leave us in our misery and confusion and in our suffering and still be just to do so, he makes it clear to us through our chapter today, that he will not idly sit by. It says in verse 3, then the Lord will go out and he will fight. He will fight for us, he declares. He will fight against those nations. And so for the remaining time we have, I wanted to walk you through the seven hope-filled promises of God that are meant to encourage you to help you keep on pressing forward in this life. I know that there are many, but I'm not gonna spend a whole lot of time on each of them. I just want you to know that they're here for you to receive and to embrace. So number one, God promises to make a path for us and to provide a place of refuge for us where we can find long-lasting comfort and security. And verse four, it says, on that day, right, on that day, there's that phrase again, on that, it's an apocalyptic expression. Okay. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives shall be split in two, creating a valley for his people to flee. Right. There's gonna be a pathway opened up for us 
You see, when the walls around us begin to crumble and when it seems like everywhere we look leads to a dead end, God promises that he will arise and he will fight for us and he will take his stand on the Mount of Olives. In case you didn't know, the Mount of Olives is the exact same place Jesus prayed to his father in anguish before his arrest. It's also the place where Jesus began his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and where the people acknowledged him to be the promised Messiah. And it's also the place where Jesus ascended into heaven after his resurrection and where we will, that's where we will one day see him face to face. He is there now. We will meet him soon. And so you see that the Mount of Olives is a place where the Lord fought for us he took his stand, and he miraculously opened up a way for us so that we can flee, not to this underground bunker in fear. In our context today, it is to the valley where the Lord promises to meet us, but ultimately, as you should all know, it's to the very throne room of God where he currently dwells in glory. That is where we will meet him. That is the path he provided. This is where the people who wrote the popular song, Waymaker, must have gotten their inspiration. I had to look it up, actually. Where did the people of Waymaker, the people who wrote this song, where did they get their inspiration? Unfortunately, I learned that it's not from this passage, but this passage would have been a very good passage to base that kind of song on as well. Right? You are Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. I like how it brings in all these elements together, right? You are the way maker. You're the miracle worker. You are the light in the darkness, which brings us to our next promise. Because the second promise is that he will provide us with a light that is different from the light we're accustomed to. On that day, there shall be no light, it says. But then at the very end, it says that there shall be a light in the evening. It's a weird thing. How is there light in the evening? What is this talking about? This is supposed to sound very strange to us because we can't imagine life without light that comes from the sun. Our day and night is supposed to be clearly distinguished because of the sun's activities, but God is promising us that a day will come where there will be a greater light that will shine. It's not from the sun. Genesis gives us a hint because it says day one, there's going to be light, right? Let there be light. And then day four, that's when the sun's created. In Revelation 21, this idea is developed more. We're given a vision of what our final destination will be, and it expands upon what we see here in Zechariah. It says, and I saw no temple in that city, right? The holy, glorified city of God, where we will eventually dwell. For its temple is the Lord, the Almighty. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God will give its light. What a glorious image. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. 
and there will be no night there. It'll be an everlasting light. The light will never grow dim. The glory of God will always shine. So Zechariah describes this day as a unique day because the light will no longer come from the sun, but from the Lord himself, which signifies that there will be no more, right? No more people confused, lost in, in darkness. They'll be guided by the light of Jesus itself. I mean, brothers, sisters, how hopeful is this message? How often do we get frustrated over the moral confusion we see in this world? How often do you get frustrated because you, you see your friends lost in darkness? They've left the faith. They've renounced their faith in some way. They, they've deconstructed their faith and they're lost. But God says there will be no more confusion because people will be guided by the light of Jesus once and for all. Third, God promises a city with, with living waters that will never cease flowing. Verse 8, on that day, again, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And so what's the, what's the image here? Just like the light that is given will be an everlasting light, the living water mentioned here will be a never-ending stream of water that gives life to all who reside in God's holy city. You see, in Genesis 1, we're told that there was a river flowing out of Eden. Maybe it's actually chapter 2. Flowing out of Eden to the water, to, to water the garden. But in Revelation 22, right? So Genesis and Revelation, they're talking to each other, right? And Zechariah is also, uh, it, it's connected in some way. It's his end time vision. Well, in Revelation chapter 22, this river is described to be flowing from the very throne of God and of the Lamb. And so the source of this living water is none other than Jesus himself. There's living water, abundant, never-ending stream to give us life. Fourthly, God promises to be fully recognized as king. For me, this is really encouraging. Verse 9 says, The Lord will be king over all the earth, and on that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. No more syncretistic religion. No more confusion, even among God's people. No more living with one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world anymore. How frustrating has that been for many of you? This means that our idolatrous hearts will finally be conquered by the grace of God. There will be no more sinful desires in your hearts that compete against your love for the Lord. I think most of you would agree that the greatest battle in your life that's been tormenting your soul hasn't come from, you know, pagan influences like the Islamic faith or any secular modern ideology that manifests in some form of, let's say, critical race theory or gender theory. I mean, those things will one day be fully exposed and wiped out as well, I believe. But I bet most of you would agree that the greatest battle in your life has to do with the inner struggle that you experience against your own sin every day. It's why you tend to struggle with guilt and shame on a regular basis. I failed again to love the Lord fully, right? 
I've given in to that sin again. For men, it's often the struggle against our lust that causes us to feel defeated. Brothers, please do not give up in your battle against your lusts. And I'm not just talking about sexual lusts here. And please don't try to justify your sins either in order to ease your consciences, the cop-out way of dealing with sin. You just lower the bar. Pretend everything's okay. You move the goalposts every year. Recently, I had a conversation with one brother about the amount of alcohol people tend to consume today, even among our members. And I honestly, I have to admit that I, I was surprised. Please don't try to find, find out who snitched against you, okay? Again. How much do you drink in one sitting? I was told that some of you have no problem casually chugging down a six-pack. Like, no problem. It's as if you're drinking water. All right, that's the typical saying, I guess. You think that's good and normal? People don't even drink that much water in a given evening, right? I asked this brother, okay, after they drink that much, would they pass a alcohol test? Like if they got pulled over by a cop, would they pass? And he's like, oh, no, no, they can't. They wouldn't pass. <laughs> so I was like, well, doesn't that mean objectively then they're, they're drunk, even though they might not be like going like this, right? that they're not mentally clear. I thought of this example, because <clears throat> again, I, you know, uh, I know that we're all into rationalizing our faith, just as our brother Stephen mentioned, so I'm sure you're rationalizing again, right? You, you rationalize about your uh, gambling addiction, you rationalize about your alcohol addiction, right? When, when we're normally recording our podcast episodes, uh, it's 90% of the time, it's between 8 p.m. and midnight, okay? Did you know that? Either a Sunday night or a Monday evening. That, that's been the trend, okay? You think I'm awake and alert then? All right. It's because Davina's the most awake during those hours, right? <laughs> she, she's the most alert, right? That's where she, like, that, that's her prime you know, activity time, and that's when I'm like killing over. The, can we find a different time? Maybe I should request that, right? But you know, once nine o'clock hits, I notice that I'm not as mentally sharp for sure. My speech gets slurred. I was listening to one of the recordings recently, and I was thinking to myself, why do I sound drunk? <laughs> and I'm, I'm like drinking, I'm drinking effervescent sparkling water, hoping that it'll kind of, you know, wake me up. It does no help. <laughs> but that's me drinking sparkling water. I'm not mentally sharp even then. And you're telling me that six cans of beer have no effect on your mental state? So if I ask you to pray after you drink that much, you think you'll be able to pray coherently? You really don't know why the Lord calls us not to get drunk, not to drink so much. It's because the days are evil, brothers and sisters. Because he... He desires for us, he desires his people to always be alert and mentally sharp. Because just like that, we will compromise. 
Sisters, I'm not going to address you today. Doesn't mean that you're innocent, okay? Just means that I'm not ready to handle more than I just shared. (laughs) The fifth promise is that he will establish a permanent city where there will be peace for his people, like everlasting peace. Verse 10, the whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, but there's a city that will be exalted. Jerusalem shall remain aloft. The picture is everything else will be flattened. Geba and Ramon were geographical points that represented the entire land, okay? You can think of it as God saying, from Loudoun County to all the way to Virginia Beach, the land will be leveled. And the great city of D.C.? <laughs> it shall be exalted. It will be aloft. That, that's, what, that's a picture, okay? And this city will be bustling with people because it will become finally a city of Blessing and peace. There will be no more crime, no more corruption, no more drug-infested streets. The stores will no longer be boarded up because they'll be busy serving the people in the city. That's the image. That's the glorious vision. How we long for that. The holy city of God, where God dwells. Jerusalem literally means city of peace will finally enjoy Peace once and for all. So what's the main lesson here? At least one of the lessons we can take away is is that only when the Lord is rightly exalted as king over all, we're to expect perfect peace in this world. Whenever we compromise Jesus' kingship in our lives and in this world, guess what? There's going to be less peace, not more peace, brothers and sisters. Is there more peace or less peace in our world today because people decided to just, what, dethrone God everywhere? That's why I believe that the cultural Christianity of the past, where people at least gave lip service to God, even though they didn't really believe in him, but at least the majority gave at least lip service to God, though not ideal, was, in my mind, still much better than what we have now, where Christ is routinely trampled upon and mocked. So you see more death, more suffering, more chaos, less peace, not more peace. And I understand there's no culture or nation that will be able to achieve perfect peace in this fallen world. And so what are we left to do? We're left to yearn for a better world, aren't we? And that better world is what God promises to us on that day. That world will come. That city of peace will come on that day. That's a promise. Number six, he will be our avenger who will avenge our foes. Verse 12, and this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. This is PG-13 here. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. 
gruesome image. Look, zombie apocalypse image, right? It's weird. But the point is that perfect justice will be fulfilled. All the wrongs will be made right. And anyone who remains defiant against the Lord, they will be brought to justice. Have you been frustrated because some of the injustices you had to suffer in this life? Well, God will take care of those. Lastly, all of the world's wealth will be taken away from God's enemies and given to his people. Verse 13, on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of another and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected. Everything that these unbelieving, God-dishonoring people, they'll be stripped of their wealth. You know, people are so fixated on money, aren't they? Understandably so, because if this is all that you hope for in this life, then of course you want as much power and influence as possible, and that comes to the means of money. But sometimes we think that we're really missing out in life, especially when we stroll through our social media news feeds and we see how, 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 what a, what a fun life people are living. What, wow, look how much money they're making. But remember this, people of God, all the earthly riches that people like Zuckerberg have made, they will be given to us in the end as our inheritance. On that day, there's going to be this massive redistribution of wealth, not wealth flowing necessarily from the rich to the poor, but from the unbelievers to the believers. That's the image here. That's how you should view the world's riches. There's no need to envy rich people because on that day, all of it will be given to us as our inheritance. Everything Jesus has will become ours. So what is the main lesson that we should learn from all this? And one thing I want to make clear is that you should not be deceived. We, we should not be deceived. We should not fall into despair. See, it may feel like you are losing in this world because your enemies are tormenting you. Sometimes the walls around you feel like they're crumbling upon you but you are not losing. That's one of the key takeaways from these series of visions. You are not losing. That's not our reality. The truth is that on that day, all things will turn in your favor. For he will be your way maker. He will be your everlasting life, your never-ending stream of living water. When all hope is lost, on that day, he will arise and he will fight for you. And there's going to be this major plot twist that leads to this glorious surprise ending. Right, don't you love surprise endings? I'm going to now have you watch a surprise ending, sort of. <laughs> One of my favorite movies is The Lord of the Rings. If you haven't watched it, I really feel sorry for you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. If you haven't watched it, Please, I recommend it, all right? Uh, it's a short clip here from Lord of the Rings, 
And if I were to put Zechariah 14 in movie format, right, this would be pretty much it. So here we go. Time out, time out. Yeah, we got to cut the, uh, that, thank you, okay. We got to do this over, right? Let's, let's go, let's do this correctly now, let's go. The fortress is taken. It is over. You said this fortress would never fall while your men defend it. They still defend it. They have died defending it. No other way for the women and children to get out of the caves. Is there no other way? There is one passage. It leads into the mountains. But they will not get far. The Urukai are too many. Send word for the women and children to make for the mountain pass and barricade the entrance. So much death. What can men do against such reckless hate? Ride out with me. Ride out and meet them. For death and glory. For Rohan. For your people. Your sun is rising. Look to my coming at first light on the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. Yes. Yes. The horn of Helm Hammerhand shall sound in the deep one last time. Yes! This be the hour when we draw swords together. Fell deeds awake. Now for wrath, now for ruin, and the red dawn.
I wish I could watch the whole thing, right? Don't you love that line? I let this be the hour. We draw our swords together. Which reminded me, our swords are the word of God. So you should actually sign up to, you should sign up to, uh, you know, meet the Bible memory challenge, the Bible reading challenge, right? Just uh, as a side note there. But I love that scene because it reminds us as to who we're called to trust in in this life. And I really want us as a people of God to, Show some courage that we could ride together, in, ride out together in this fallen world. I want to remind you this morning that we, we receive more grace than we know. Right? Understand who you are in Christ, right? You are not to live with your shoulders hunched over, looking all defeated and dejected. You're to live standing tall with your shoulders unbowed. Right? Remember, you've been made sons and daughters of the living God who share in the inheritance of the king. You are more than conquerors, God tells us. You will one day judge the angels themselves, we're told. So let your spirit soar, for you have received a greater grace than you know. I know it's, it may sound cheesy, but i got to do it again, okay? <laughs> Ride out with me, people of God. Let's ride out together for death and glory, for the future of Jerusalem, this great city of peace. And let's look to Jesus' coming and know that on that day, he will secure for us the final victory. That is the confidence we have as God's people. It's not a confidence in ourselves, but it's a confidence in the promise of God. Amen? Let's pray together.